All right, so uh, we are in week two of our series called Relation Slips, which is a series on relationships, but sometimes relationships, as much as we are connected to one another here and people outside there and family and friends and, of course, social media, sometimes relationships slip and then somebody gets hurt. And maybe you're sitting here and you don't have to think too hard. You're already hurting. You're already upset or angry about something that has happened between you and somebody else. And what we're going to be using just as our kind of foundational narrative for this series is a tiny little book of Philemon in the New Testament. Uh, I know uh, last week Craig called it Philemon. Uh, so uh, we'll settle that outside of the church buildings. Uh, <laughs> but um, if you want to find it, either click it onto your tablet or your phone. Otherwise, start at the back of the Bible, go through Revelation, it's a big book, the next big book is Hebrews, turn back one page and there you have the kind of half-page book, Um, this tiny little gem, the book of Philemon. So Philemon, just a bit of context, was a wealthy guy, wealthy guy with a number of people on his home, on his house, homestead, he had a number of slaves, a number of servants, he had a house church, and um, you might have thought last week as we read through this for the first time, slaves? This is like a New Testament book and and we've got the topic of slaves and no one seems to care and no one seems to think anything about that. And just before we move on, I just think we need to talk very quickly about this because I think most of us, uh, when we hear the word slave, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of 18th, 19th century slavery, which was race-based, which is kind of colonial, people coming in, uh, really deporting people, abducting people from their homeland, and moving them to somewhere else, forced to work for almost nothing, and treated like absolute animals. Um, and then we see the word slave in the New Testament, and we import uh, all the images we've seen from the movies and the series, and we import that back into first century world, which is when the book of Philemon was written. And while slavery in this time was very different, and it was by, by no means perfect, it was so different. Uh, historians estimate that at the time of the first century, up to one third of the Roman Empire were slaves. Modern slavery was race-based, uh, first century slavery was not Modern slavery, people were treated like absolute animals and very seldomly even paid or fed well. Whereas in first century slavery, slaves could achieve great status. They could achieve great wealth and great power. As a first century slave, you could be a doctor or a lawyer or a sea captain or even a magistrate. Um, Some people even voluntarily became slaves because the way that it worked was that you could eventually save up enough money and buy your freedom and then you became a fully-fledged Roman citizen. So for so many people, this was a step en route to becoming a fully-fledged Roman citizen. And again, there were definitely abuses and definitely something that God dealt with in this culture that's still very different to the modern slavery that you and I maybe think of. But here we are, Philemon had the system on his home, and he had a slave, his name was Onesimus. And we don't know exactly what catalyzed the offense in their relationship, but Onesimus gets up and he runs away and he runs to Rome. On his way out, it seems like he possibly stole some things from Philemon, and somehow in Rome, he comes across the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was under house arrest, and Apostle Paul did what he always does, he introduces people to Christ. So Onesimus, this runaway slave, living kind of in this shame, he was introduced to faith in Christ. And Paul says, listen, Onesimus, I'm going to send you back. Now, just put yourself in Paul's shoes. 
If you came across a runaway person, someone who's run away from a contract or run away from an obligation, maybe even uh, told you that they've stolen some things from some people, uh, if you had to send them back, uh, under what grounds would you do that? So often we're thinking, oh, we're going to send them back. They're going to get justice. Or we're going to send you back. We're going to make sure that you pay back every cent that you stole. And for Paul, that was just kind of part B, part C of the story. For Paul, he's saying, listen, I am going to send you back, but I'm going to send you back so that you and Philemon can be reconciled. So this tiny but so important letter is about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. And I just want to raise the bar and just kind of bring into Paul's mind as he talks about this. So I'm going to read from verse 10 a little bit. He says this, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Pause. Now something we miss out on the English language here is that what the word anesimus means, it literally means useful. So Paul's kind of playing with language here. He's saying this guy called useful was useless, but now he's become useful to me and he's going to become useful to you. In other words, the greater goal here is that Onesimus, through faith in Christ and through a reestablishment of this relationship, is going to start living up to his namesake. He's going to start being enabled to live up to all that God has called him to be, to be useful in the kingdom of God. And we need to start getting a vision for what those reconciliatory relationships can look like in our lives. God wants to elevate this in our minds. So just to read on here, Paul says, I'm sending him, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Bold, highlight, underline, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. See, Paul is wanting to send this man back to Philemon, not to reinstate a slave owner contractual relationship, but to actually elevate the relationship to greater heights. That they are now restored to full Christ-like brotherhood in the Lord. And, and, and maybe as you think about your relationships, maybe you can start catching this vision. Maybe you can't see it right now. Maybe you don't have the faith for it today. But I hope that over the course of the series, you will start catching a vision that maybe, maybe God can work in your relationships in such a way that He can not only restore them to some sort of former glory, but even to greater glory. So that this relationship can have brotherhood and sisterhood in the Lord all over it. Now, I want you to imagine that as much as there's this wonderful letter and as much as we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, as much as uh, Paul has kind of sent this letter so that Philemon is a little bit prepped when it comes to this, at some stage Onesimus is going to have to walk back into Philemon's home and have a really awkward conversation. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about these awkward, critical conversations that we need to be having in these fractured relationships of ours. And Paul is saying, 
Listen, guys, if you're going to be having these conversations, there is an absolute necessary ingredient that you need. And if you want to know what that ingredient is, just look at me, the first few verses of Philemon. Verse 1 to 3, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably Philemon's son, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And look down to verse 25, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. See, Paul is recognizing, and this is quite common for him, this is how he tops and tails his books. But he's recognizing, listen guys, if we're going to be talking about reconciling, if we're going to be talking about forgiveness, if we're going to be talking about having awkward and critical conversations, we need to bookend this whole process in grace. You need to start with grace. And you need to end with grace. And you need to make sure that the whole center is saturated in grace. What is grace? It's simply what God gives us. Because maybe you're thinking about your relationship and you're saying, I don't have it in me. When I look at the the brokenness in this friendship or this relationship, I can't see some sort of reconciliation. That's why we need grace. That's why we need what God can give. That's why we need wisdom and perspective that only God can give. So we need to be bookending our conversations with grace. We need to be bookending, working from a relationship, a slip, relation slip to our Reconciled relationships, bookending them with grace and saturating them with grace. Now, if you were here last week, we spoke about the fact that not every offense against us is an offense worth being offended about. We kind of recognize that we live in a hyper-offended culture. And that is true in the church and that's true outside of the church. I mean, we almost can't say anything. We can barely order a burger without somebody getting offended somewhere along the line. We spoke about having emotional sunburn. The fact that, man, people just greet us or look at us. Immediately, we're offended and we're critical and we're responsive. And the lesson that we learned last week is, man, guys, the more mature we get, the wiser we get, the more of God's grace is in our lives, the more we're going to have capacity to overlook unnecessary offenses. Somehow we think that maturity is my ability to criticize everybody else. And the Bible says, no, exactly the opposite. Real maturity, real wisdom is to grow in your capacity to overlook an offense. But we also said to you last week that um, from this week onwards, we're going to be dealing with genuine offenses. So there's been a genuine offense, a genuine transgression, genuine pain. And we're going to talk tonight about how to talk about it. Hence, critical conversations. And just like Philemon and Onesimus, we're going to be having critical conversations, hopefully in the next few weeks, with the people that God wants us to be reconciled to. Uh, So guys, we need some biblical wisdom on this. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Matthew chapter 5. And you might just want to stick your finger in Matthew chapter 18 as well. We're going to go there in a few minutes' time. Otherwise, it will be on the screen behind me. So Matthew 5, here's biblical wisdom on critical conversations. Therefore... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. Just that word first, underline, highlight, bold. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gifts. Let's update that. So you're getting ready for church. 
you're in the shower, you're brushing your teeth, kind of on your way here, and as you're on your way to church, you kind of think to yourself, I hope so-and-so is not there today, because they've got an issue with me. Or maybe you arrive on Sunday morning or Sunday evening and you see someone sitting on one side so you go to the other side because your kid said something bad to their kid or, or their kid said something bad to your kid or your two families are struggling to get along and you're just about ready to leave and go join another church. And what Paul says here, or what Jesus says here, sorry, is he says, listen, first stop, first, before you sing, before you listen to a preach, first go and be reconciled. He's not saying worship and, and uh, being part of a church is unimportant. He's just saying the most important thing at that moment in time, if there's a relational breakdown, is that you sort that out first and then, and then come back and then come back and worship and then come back and love God. Somehow we've got this idea that I can be cool with God and not cool with people. I think one of the things that contributes to this way of thinking is what we often refer to as a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, absolutely, every single one of us needs a personal relationship with Jesus. I can't rest on my parents' faith or my kids' faith or my wife's faith. I need to have my own relationship with Jesus. But somehow we've interpreted that to mean my private relationship with Jesus. So it's kind of, you know, in the car, listening to worship music, it's just me and Jesus. Right, and I'm in church, and yeah, me and Jesus are cool, and I'm singing, and my hands are up in the air, and then I'm listening to the sermon, and I'm taking notes, and I'm using the new app, and I'm so pumped that man, oh man, my life is falling apart around me, and all my relationships are falling apart. And Jesus flips that on his head, and he says, listen guys, if you really love me, if you really want to worship me, if you really want to demonstrate that you are a Christ follower, First, go and have a critical conversation. First, go and talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. That is going to be our true act of worship. And then, and then we can come back and we can worship. Now, if you've got kids, you actually know how this works. So I've got two kids, and yesterday was uh, somehow one of the uh, worst days that we've had more recently. Where our two kids, they were just climbing into each other all the time. They just couldn't get along. doesn't matter how we tried to coach them out of it. doesn't matter how many consequences they were warned with. They just, carried, they just couldn't get along. So, and we've often had those moments where our kids are just fighting, and they, they're just like screaming at each other. And then they run into the lounge, Daddy, Daddy, can we have ice cream? I'm like, no, well, what's wrong with you guys? You, know, you, you can't even get along with each other. Oh, but daddy, we love you. Daddy, you're awesome. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm awesome, I'm going to make sure that you guys get along and then ice cream's for everyone, right? And God is exactly the same way with us. He's so concerned by our love for one another. That is the sign of our love and our worship for him. I mean, imagine we did this. I mean, church would be empty for the next month. And the coffee shops around the south of Joburg would be full on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. But imagine as his, recon- as his relationships reconciled. Imagine as we sorted these issues out, how much stronger our faith would be, how much more joy we would have in our lives. If we actually did this. So... That passage was about having a critical conversation. If someone has an issue with you, what about when you've got an issue with someone? 
So here's another passage, uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I just want to start with verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, where are we to go with this? We are to go to them. Right? This verse even qualifies that. It says, just the two of you. But is that what we do? No, some of us go to social media. I don't know, we make these vague comments about how upset we are at people around us. We're like, who are you upset with? And it all comes out. Or we go to our boyfriends or our girlfriends or our friends or our family and we tell everyone what this person did against us. And we kind of get everyone onto my team. Now you're on my team. You can't be on their team. You can't love us both. And we remind ourselves why we're all upset with this person. I mean, it's like high school all over again. I mean, I reckon if we took this wisdom, literally, where there was an issue, we went to that person first, 90% of our stuff would get sorted out. I'm not saying there's not a space for some genuine, wise counsel, which is so different to kind of gathering a team of people around you so we can all be upset, upset with the same person. So let's continue reading here. Says it, but if they will not listen, sorry, before I even go there, I just want to talk about this quickly. What is the goal of this conversation? Now, of course, the goal, part of the goal of this conversation is to talk about the offense, to talk about the sin, to have this critical conversation. But what is the real goal? The real goal is actually written there it's to win them over. To win them over. We've got to get that right in our hearts first. That that is why we go and we have these conversations so we can win them over. It's not to draw blood. It's not just to spew. It's not just to tell them what an idiot they are. It's actually to go there humbly to win them over, to restore the relationship. Now let's go back to verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now I went to high school in the Vale. Uh, Eden Glen High and this is generally how conflicts were worked out so uh, two guys have an issue uh, something happened in class or someone looked at their girlfriend wrong whatever the case might be they have a little bit of a tussle uh, a few days later the one dude calls up all of his cousins and they meet the dude outside the school and they're going to mess him up right and you're thinking it would end there no because then the other dude finds double the amount of cousins and then they find this dude and his cousins generally in the veil they meet at the Italian club and have a big old tussle right that's not what this verse is saying this verse is not saying bring your best mate and, and let's go and intimidate this person in conversation remember the goal is to win them so if they don't hear you the first time, you're going to bring a mutual friend. You're going to bring someone with wisdom, someone with uh, a demonstrated patience, maybe a life group leader, someone who you both trust. Someone that when things get out of control, they can actually call you both back in. Kind of say, listen guys, let's just get back on track here. Remember, we're going to win this relationship back. Right, that's what is going on here in this verse. And then this, these verses continue to say, listen, if that still doesn't work, then and only then do we get to verse 17. 
If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean necessarily stand up here and tell everyone what's going on in all your lives. This, this is when you're going to involve church leaders. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, if there is a relation slip and there is an issue between you and me, we are going to do everything in our power to make sure that we restore this relationship. And we're going to start off by having a conversation one-on-one. And again, if we did that, 90% of our stuff would get sorted out. And then we're going to go to the next level. I mean, are we talking about like awesome puppies and dolphins and rainbows? This isn't fun. This is difficult. But let me ask you, which is worse for me to go and have a one-on-one with you or to wait until things get even worse between us? Or for me to have a conversation and then maybe bring someone to maybe mediate the conversation. I mean, just what happens if we don't? Things get even worse. Because snowballs one way. This passage is inviting us to do everything in our power to reconcile. And only then, if we can stand before God and say, listen, we've done everything. We've involved friends. We've involved church leaders. And still, somehow, this is not coming together. The church says, at that point, after a very long, difficult process, then we can move on. But I reckon most relations don't have to get there. And we can sort it out sooner. Here's how Paul puts it differently. He's writing to the church in Rome. And he says in Romans 12 verses 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So he starts off by saying, if it is possible, because it is not always possible, but as far as it depends on you. In other words, you are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for your efforts. You are responsible to make steps. These passages that we've looked at, the one passage is someone's got a problem with you, but you make the first move. The other one is you've got a problem with them and you make the first move. As far as it's up to you, live at peace with everyone. So let's get super practical because some of you are thinking that uh, a critical conversation is coming up. Maybe it's even tonight. All right. Maybe if it's for someone in this room, maybe it's going to happen in the next few days or the next few weeks. Let's just give you a few very practical handles on how we can do that. And the first handle is this, and this goes back to last week and I'm going to sound like I'm beating a drum here, but I am. Is this an unnecessary offense? Just think about it, pray about it, do it with God, maybe get some wisdom and some counsel. Is this something that can be overlooked? Is this something that is too small and unnecessary? Have you lost perspective? Is there something else much bigger going on in their lives? Is there something else going on in your life? All right, and actually, can you get to the point where you just need to mature and grow through this and overlook the offense? But number two, big point number two is this. Have you prayed for them? I mean, really. When we have these conversations, do we start with prayer? Have you prayed for the person? Some of you are like, oh, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray they get rashes and boils in painful places, right? I'm going to pray that God sends his wrath down onto them. No, no, no. Remember, Paul is talking about bookending this whole process in grace. That we are depending on what God is going to do. The input he is going to give us into this context. That's what grace is. So we need to be praying. And as we pray, 
You might be thinking, even you've got no idea. I mean, there's so much pain in my heart right now. There's so much anger. And I think it is truly possible to be angry and to be hurt, but still to pray for this person as hard as it is. The Bible even says, listen, pray for your enemies. And maybe this person who was a friend feels like an enemy right now. Maybe you don't even know where to start. Lord, I want to pray for them. I just don't want it right now. That's cool. You've got the conversation started between you and God. All right, but learn to pray for them. See, God can accomplish a number of things in prayer. The first thing is, He may just use your prayer and don't be just like, ah, okay, God, help me. No, get down on your knees and pray. Wrestle this thing through. And God may just answer this issue in your relationship through prayer before you even open your mouth. God may be the one who creates the opportunities. God may be the one who changes hearts. So the first reason is God may use prayer to change this thing in this person. Number two, God may change your attitude towards them. I'm not saying if you're deeply hurt and you're deeply angry that suddenly you're going to be overwhelmed with a kind of this like feeling of euphoria and love for this person. But God, as you pray, God may just take the edge of anger the root of bitterness out of your heart. Just prepare you so when you do have the conversation, just some of our sinful tendencies and some of our broken ways of responding to hurt and pain are just starting to be dealt with in our own hearts. Right? The third thing is that um, as we pray in this context, God may even change you. You're praying for God to change the other person. Maybe you're the problem. I've mentioned a story, and, and you may have heard it, or you may remember it. Is, uh, a pastor was talking about the fact that uh, a couple of uh, you know, parents came up to him and said, listen, you know, we're just praying for our son, and, and he's just gone off the rails, and, and we've tried to do everything. We've tried to raise him right. We've tried to just stop him from going over these boundaries. We've tried to warn him. We've tried to encourage him, but he's just going one way. So the pastor said, cool, well, let's make this a, a, an urgent matter of prayer. And he just led them as parents through really praying, not just shooting up the odd shotgun prayer, but really wrestling through this in prayer. After a few weeks of these parents wrestling through this in prayer, they realized the son's not the problem, they were. They had been parenting in such a way that were pushing their son away. They were the ones that needed to repent. They were the ones who needed their hearts changed. And only after that process were they much far better equipped to actually deal with the son who had been pushed away from them. So guys, so important to make sure that we are saturated in prayer. We need to start with God and end with God and also have him throughout the whole process. Number three, remember we're going to figure out is this an unnecessary offense? Then we're going to go from there and we're going to pray for this person. And then number three, examine your motives. Examine your motives. I know you and I, we can so easily fool ourselves and we even try and fool God. I mean, if I had to ask you, if you're going to have this conversation, what are your true motives? We know the right answer. The right answer is, well, you know, I, I want to forgive this person. And I want to ask you, do you really? As you're going to have this conversation, is that where your heart is really at? Let's just take the masks off. And sometimes we be surprised to see what's in our own hearts. I've been surprised by that at times. Because sometimes our motives are not really to reconcile. Sometimes our motives are to draw blood. 
I mean, I'm going to have this conversation and I'm just going to unleash and I'm going to make them feel the pain that I've been feeling. See, here's the thing about our true motives. We will always achieve our true motives. If your motive is to inflict pain, you will get those results. Sometimes our motives are to, you know, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to teach them. There's better ways to do things. And, and I am the elected person to do this. If that is your motive, this person is going to walk away feeling like you've tried to treat them like a naughty boy or a naughty girl. And that's going to do nothing for the relationship. So we need to examine our motives and ensure as hard it is, as it is, man, I'm going to win them over. And God, if my heart's not there, I'm not going to have a conversation until my heart is at least on the right track where my true motive is to win them over. If that is your motive, you're going to persevere through some of the awkwardness, through some of the difficulty of these conversations and give you a lot more chance of actually reconciling in this relationship. There's a verse in the book of Ephesians that probably sums up everything that I've just said. Ephesians 4.15 says this, whatever you do, speak the truth in love. Some of us are more truth orientated. That's me. But the thing is, truth without love can be cold and critical and hypocritical, to be honest. Love without truth may sound wonderful. It can be incredibly sentimental, but unhelpful because we never get to talk about the real issues. Somehow we need to figure out how we're going to speak the truth Here's the truth of what's going on. Here's the truth of what's happening in our relationship. Here's the truth of how I've been hurt. Here's the truth of the breakdown. Here's the truth of what I believe God wants to do in our relationship. Here's the truth of what I truly want. And to do it in love. By definition, love is going to make it about the other person. The Bible in another place says, only say what is helpful for building one another up. And even in this context... Lord, I I need supernatural grace so that I can speak the truth in love. So, uh, we really are wrapping up now. Uh, Some of you are really thinking about who you need to be having a critical conversation with. And I know that maybe some of you sitting here are so hurt and are so angry that you're afraid of what will happen if you get in a room with this person. Maybe some of you, as you think about this critical conversation that needs to happen, you actually want to do the opposite. You're, so, you're going to do everything in your power to avoid having some sort of a conversation. Just to let you know, over the course of the next two weeks, next week we're going to talk about forgiveness. The week after we're going to talk about reconciling. And regardless of how you feel about the conversation, maybe it might be good to press pause and, and just to see what God says to you over the course of the next two weeks. Maybe some of you know that God is calling you to have a conversation this week. But regardless of where you're at, I want to pray for what Paul does in this letter that we would book in this process in grace. So just think about this conversation Think about your relationships. Think about where there is pain, where there has been hurt, where there has been anger. And just close your eyes and let's invite God into these situations. So Father, I don't know if there's anyone in this room who cannot identify with something that we've spoken about here. God, where a relationship has devolved, where things have become complex and difficult, And Father, the first thing I want to pray for all of us here 
is that you would inject something of you into us. That you would inject something of you into the situation. In other words, that there would be grace. God, that you would provide new and different perspective. That you would provide grace where there hasn't been grace up to this point. That you would provide truth and clarity where there hasn't been truth and clarity up to this point. That you provide a sound mind. That you provide a context of love. That you provide a willingness in our hearts, even if it is now for the very first time that we even desire to truly reconcile. God, I pray that you would judge our motives. I pray that you would expose what our sinful and broken motives are. And God, that you would do something new in us. God, if there are going to be any conversations happening this week, would you infuse yourself into those moments? Would people be won over? Would relationships be reconciled? Would relationships be strengthened, not just to former glory, but to greater glory? And Father, for some of us who are just going to allow you to continue speaking to us over the course of the rest of the series, I pray that your voice and your grace and your forgiveness of us would be loudest. And also, God, that more and more of your grace would be in our hearts. So, Lord, we declare we need you and we need what only you can give. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.